All right, we are back. I don't know whether the microphone will pick this up, but we're in a room with a fire. And know that it does not mean the studio is burning down. It means that we're recording this in a living room with a fireplace, which is kind of nice. It's a, it's a rainy day here in, uh, in California as we record. Uh, there's some hope that they'll make up for the driest February, I think, in California history with some storms which are coming one after the other. And thank God... There's been talk about California returning to drought status, and that's still a real possibility, but uh, every inch that falls from the sky in the days and weeks to come will be welcome. Yes, we do hope that we're sounding rather folksy in this fireside chat of ours. As we said at the top of the program, we're hoping in the weeks to come here and months to come that we'll still produce regular programming, but not necessarily linked to... The news of today. The news of today can be pretty pretty depressing. Of course, we'll delve into that a bit during this segment. But uh, we might prefer. We are hoping that in the weeks to come, months to come, we may delve into our vast, extensive collection of materials that never got on the program and dig through it. And again, we're going to do a little bit of that, I think, in the segment to follow. Because there's just tons of stuff there, and it's not freshness dated. Uh, Owing to circumstances beyond our control, last week's program was a rerun. I delegated that fully to Mr. McMillan to dig up something and got an email a few days later from a a friend of this program, Joshua, who asked about the program about the evolution of the eye. And uh, I I wasn't aware of the fact that Mr. McMillan had gone to the archives and grabbed our interview with Ivan Schwab, but it was a good one, and one that is not tied to the news of today. We could air it today, we could air it tomorrow, we could air it, uh, you know, a thousand years in the future of, of eye evolution, probably, and have it still be relevant. But uh, we do need, I think, to talk in this segment about the fantastic article, which appears in the current issue of The New Yorker by Jane Meyer, titled The Man Behind the Dossier. Subheadline: how Christopher Steele compiled his secret report on Trump's ties with Russia. That's worth at least eight minutes. When you're living in a world where the Secretary of State gets fired while he's over in Chad via a tweet, and a porn star is talking about suing the president over her desire to reveal more about their relationship, well, things have just gotten a bit cuckoo. Two months ago, we talked about how the counterattack sure to come from the Republicans and the evangelicals who still support Trump, or, or, or see in Trump an opportunity to gain more power, I'm not sure which, that we were going to see the O.J. Simpson impeachment defense. As you may recall, if you're old enough, back in 1994, former football player and media personality O.J. Simpson was tried for murdering his wife. The evidence against Mr. Simpson was so astoundingly compelling, his high-priced legal team decided instead to put the Los Angeles police force on trial. Now, the LAPD had been guilty of some infractions in prior years, so they were a bit vulnerable, and it certainly worked out well for O.J. It's the hope of Radio Parallax it will not work out so well for Donald J. Trump, a man who two years ago in March 2016 brought a guy named Carter Page onto his uh, campaign team, announcing that he was part of his new foreign policy advisory panel. It's now been revealed through the Steele dossier that Carter Page also met with some Putin cronies, in July of 2016, including Igor Sechin, head of Russia's state-owned oil company Rosneft, and 
that Sechin offered Page and or other Trump associates millions of dollars in exchange for ending U.S. sanctions against Russia. It's been noted that as early as 2013, the Russians were working very hard to make use of Carter Page, even though they referred to him as a useful idiot. But I guess we do have to talk about this strange political battle that's taking place in the country right now. People who traditionally would be expected to back the FBI are all of a sudden seemingly having doubts. And again, for the record, Radio Parallax has lots of doubts about the Federal Bureau of Investigation. But it is strange indeed to see the President of the United States openly disparaging the integrity of both the FBI and his own Justice Department. Writing about this in NewRepublic.com, Jeet Hare said it's hard to overstate how surreal this is. The FBI is one of the government's most conservative institutions, historically staffed and led by white male Republicans and deeply distrusted by liberals. In the current world that Trump has created, hating the FBI could soon be a core part of Republican identity. How true this is struck home to me a month or two ago when I called my best connection to the FBI to ask, which side are you on on this? When I got a convoluted, not quite sensical response back saying, well, it looks as though someone got involved here who didn't do due diligence on the data presented and then started surveillance on somebody, yada, yada, yada. I just said, okay, okay, stop right there. I don't want the Sean Hannity version of what's going on. We don't need to hear from tools like Devin Nunes. Anyway, let's go back to talk about what Jane Mayer has to say about the Steele dossier and the man who created it. The piece opens, describing how in January... Christopher Steele, former MI6 high-ranking officer, he uh, worked for three years in the 90s spying in Moscow under diplomatic cover. Between 2006 and 2009, he ran MI6's Russia desk at its headquarters in London. He's fluent in Russian and widely considered to be an expert on the country. He evidently left MI6 in 2009 to form his own small investigative research firm, Orbis Business Intelligence. And Orbis became a subcontractor working for Fusion GPS, a private research firm in Washington. Fusion, in turn, had been contracted by a law firm, Perkins Coy, which represented both Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign and also the Democratic National Committee, which means that at some point, The dollars paid from the Democrats found their way to Christopher Steele. Does that make him an operative of the Democrats? Well, in spite of Republican claims along those lines, no. It should be kept in mind that Steele was a high-ranking officer in MI6. In 2008, Michael Hayden, the CIA director, visited the UK. It was Steele who briefed him on Russian developments. The following year, when President Obama visited the UK... He got briefed on a report that Steele had written about Russia. By the way, Steele was at the center of the great controversy and scandal that erupted around efforts to bring the World Cup to various countries, of which Russia was a major player. In fact, Steele's first client after leaving MI6 was England's Football Association, which had hoped to host the World Cup in 2018. It was suspected that the governing body of the Football Association, FIFA, was, was involved in some dirty dealings, and England wound up losing its bid to Russia. Steele determined along the way that the Kremlin had rigged the process with bribes, and apparently got involved in working with Qatar to swap votes on hosting the World Cup. Evidently, in spring of 2016, Steele got a call from Glenn Simpson, former investigative reporter for the Wall Street Journal, 
who in 2011 had left journalism to co-found Fusion GPS. Simpson was hoping the steel could help Fusion follow some difficult leads on Trump's ties to Russia. Simpson said he was working for a law firm, but didn't name the ultimate client. Steele and Simpson had previously worked together, and they shared a mutual fascination with Russian oligarchs and international organized crime. Steele's specialty, it turned out, was gathering intelligence from informed sources, many of them Russian. I would assume that he cultivated those while he was a spy in Moscow back in the 90s, but I don't know. Apparently, Simpson, a GPS fusion, had wondered why Trump had repeatedly gone to Russia in search of business, yet seemed to return empty-handed. Steele was tantalized and took the job, thinking he'd find evidence of a few dodgy deals and not much else. He evidently didn't consider the danger of poking into a presidential candidate's darkest secrets. Within two or three weeks, Steele's long-standing collectors came back with reports drawn from Orbis's larger network of sources. Steele looked at the material and, according to people familiar with the matter, asked himself, Oh my God, what is this? As Simpson later put it, we threw out a line in the water and Moby Dick came back. Steele's sources claimed that the KGB could easily blackmail Donald Trump, in part because it had videos of him engaging in perverted sexual acts in Russia. According to his sources, when Trump had stated the presidential suite of Moscow's Ritz-Carlton in 2013, he had paid a number of prostitutes to perform a urination show in front of him defiling a bed that Barack and Michelle Obama had slept in during a state visit. So it's not clear to me when I read this whether this is something Trump was just doing as a symbolic gesture or whether he got, got his jollies from this. At any rate, that was probably the least of it. In the grand scheme of things, it appeared the Russians were described by sources as having cultivated Trump and traded favors with him for at least five years. Vladimir Putin was described as backing Trump in order to sow discord and disunity both within the U.S. and within the transatlantic alliance. The report claimed that although Trump had not signed any real estate development deals, he and his top associates had repeatedly accepted intelligence from the Kremlin on Hillary Clinton and other rivals. The allegations were both astounding and improbable. Said Jane Mayer, according to people familiar with the matter, as Steele began to assemble the first of 17 memos which became the dossier, he was counseled to tone it down. Steele decided that it was not fair to cherry-pick the data he was getting and put it all in there. According to Jane Mayer, on June 24th, Simpson called asking him to submit his dossier. The previous day, the UK had voted to withdraw from the EU, and Steele was feeling wretched about it. Few had thought that Brexit was possible. An upset victory by Trump no longer seemed out of the question. So it was along the way here that Steele decided... He better take this information that he'd gathered and bring it to the attention of the FBI, which he did. To make a long story short, the FBI sat on it until after Trump was elected. Now, right before Election Day, of course, James Comey, head of the FBI, came forward with the idea that Hillary Clinton needed to be reinvestigated for her memo issues. Along the way, WikiLeaks published emails from John Podesta as part of the Clinton campaign, which put the entire effort to get Hillary Clinton elected into chaos. And along the way, it turned out that, well, it appeared that Russia had been spending a lot of time and effort to sow discord through social media, etc. Doing things like working on Bernie Sanders fans to make them much less interested in Hillary Clinton than they might otherwise have been. 
Bernie Sanders, as you'll recall, said, look, you know, we've got our differences, but she's the one you want to vote for, not Donald Trump. Seale was quite surprised, according to Jane Mayer, that uh, the FBI wasn't doing much with his information. And he was further astonished to find in January that his name was now being thrown about in Washington by the likes of Senators Lindsey Graham and Charles Grassley, accusing him, Steele, of having lied to the very FBI officers whom he had alerted about his findings. This is part of the accusations made by Devin Nunes in the Republican Intelligence Committee leak in January, which, of course, is classified, <laughs> so the details of it uh, could not be replied to. This whole thing is one heck of a mess. Anyway, I think one thing seems clear enough at this point, that this whole Russia thing is not a hoax. I don't think any of you believe that, dear listener, but probably a few of you have entertained some doubts. And no, we don't have the answers, but we're going to watch this with morbid fascination, as will the rest of the world. In the meantime, the piece in The New Yorker, Jane Mayer, I'd have to call it a must-read, and I hope you will take that characterization to heart and get better acquainted with the data contained within it. We certainly do live in a world of spin. <laughs> I pulled one editorial out of uh, a local paper recently with a headline, Enviros Ignore Science to Attack Roundup. This was a piece written by someone described as Executive Director for the Western Plant Health Association, which, oddly enough, represents fertilizer and crop protection manufacturers in California, Arizona, and Hawaii. In other words, chemical firms. She was apparently outraged to see a piece titled Don't Let EPA and Monsanto Hide the Truth on Roundup. In her world, anti-pesticide mega-special interests are so hell-bent to rid the world of important chemicals that they shamelessly tout a single discredited research study to manufacture their bogus scare. Well, that's one way of looking at it. But, uh, you know, uh, Donald Trump is, is surreal. He's... Uh, announced that he wants to meet Kim Jong-un. They can't figure out where they should meet. Mr. Mobillon has so far refrained from suggesting in hell. But no, this stuff reminds us of, of like, you know, what, what Kim Jong-un's old man would get up to. I have a, a piece here that we cut out back in August of 2005 about Korean dictator Kim Jong-un. North Korean sources back in 05 <laughs> claimed that the amazing dictator had trained himself to have a perfect memory. It was reported by the Korean web daily Yuri Minjok Kiri that the dear leader, as he was referred to, supposedly can recite all the telephone numbers of his top officials as well as all their computer passwords. They reported that when visiting a cemetery, Kim had only to glance at the names and the tombstones to recall personal details of the dead and of their survivors. Now, I don't know, maybe this stuff is a little bit removed from the kind of things that are being said by Trump supporters, but I don't know. The Koreans reported with a, with a straight face that Kim, in his very first game of golf, had amazingly shot 11 holes in one. And uh, I think it's been a staple of this program for the past decade and a half, oddly enough, to make comparisons between the U.S. and Zimbabwe. Because it appeared to us that the Republicans would steal an election here, for example, and then Robert Mugabe would then steal an election in Zimbabwe, and then, then the Bush administration would steal another one, like in 04, and then, and then Mugabe would respond by stealing one yet again in his country. Well, this horrible jerk finally was given the axe in Zimbabwe, and people were joyous at the possibility of seeing conditions improve 
in that beautiful country. But there's a great question here, whether his successor, Emerson Mnangagwa, uh, well, they're wondering whether he's really got some democratic instincts that his predecessor lacked. There's reason to have doubts about this. He has, for example, denied that the previous elections in Zimbabwe were unfair, especially in 2008, when NGOs reckoned that at least 270 activists of the opposition movement for democratic change were murdered. So the new president, it was fair, very fair. Where's the evidence for violence? Not a single case was taken to the police. But indeed, reported The Economist, the police were part of the problem. And the Mugabe regime, and a rather startling bit of racism, which was not roundly criticized around the world, expropriated white-owned farms. Since the year 2000, they were generally handed over to cronies of Robert Mugabe. To his credit, the new president says that he wants to compensate the 4,000-plus white farmers whose land had been confiscated and reestablish property rights. He knows he needs to do this in order to get foreign investors to return to Zimbabwe. And I must pause a moment just to express my shock at the fact that when this was going on, and, and keep in mind that the white farmers living in Zimbabwe and in many instances were part of families that had been living in that nation for centuries. No, they weren't there a thousand years ago, but they were perhaps in 1830. Does that not give them the right to consider themselves as Zimbabweans? To deny them that right because of the color of their skin? Isn't that racism? In 1988, I was fortunate enough to visit Zimbabwe. I, I, I liked it very much. It's a pretty country, very reminiscent of California. And the people of Zimbabwe, I would have to say, were as nice a bunch as I've ever met anywhere. And it was a multiracial society. So I found it very disturbing to see farms expropriated from people because they were white. And by the way, these were most of the commercial farms of the country, and when they were confiscated and turned over to Mugabe's cronies, the production on these farms collapsed, causing food shortages within Zimbabwe and a profound loss of foreign revenue on crops that could be exported. Now, does this compare to the likes of Donald Trump coming along and slapping tariffs on foreign steel? Uh, I'm not an economist, thank God. But it just has to be depressing to see people in the Congress of the United States deciding that all those laws they enacted in the wake of the economic collapse in 2008, thanks to the shenanigans of investment bankers in the real estate industry, well, people decided these rules are just too onerous. They should be relaxed. And then we could take a detour into talking not just about Zimbabwe, but about its neighbor, South Africa, and its lost decade under Jacob Zuma, and how the fact that Cape Town's running out of water is related to mismanagement by government influences, but that's just too damn depressing. So let's, let's talk about something else. I do want to sound one final sour note about politics, noting that I have a, an article from the Atlantic Monthly from a few years back, written not long after Bob Matsui, Sacramento's representative in Congress, passed away and had his wife appointed to replace him in Congress, where Doris Matsui has remained ever since. The Atlantic Monthly reported that the record of congressional widows who have run before her is an astounding 36 to 2. Now, I'm not saying the wife of a congressman, uh, you know, is, is not competent to take his place. Uh, Doris Matsui seemed to have done a pretty decent job in Congress, generally speaking. 
how politics is a family affair. Yeah, I don't know. Just ask Edmund G. Brown Jr., son of former California Governor Edmund G. Brown Sr., who between them since 1958 have served six terms in the governor's office. Anyway, as a, as a prelude to things we'll be doing more in the future, I want to pull out an article from our extensive files titled The Biggest Lies in World History. We've only got about six minutes left, so I can't do all of the lies, but let's, let's grab a couple of them and go. Shall we start with the Boston Tea Party? We were taught in school that back in 1773, the Sons of Liberty stormed three British ships in Boston Harbor and dumped 45 tons of tea overboard in a protest of the high taxes the British king had levied on them. Well, that's, that's what we were taught in the textbooks. The Boston Tea Party is considered the first act of the American Revolution, one committed in self-defense against the British colonial power. But in reality, the Tea Party was only about business. The movement was spearheaded not by simple people, but by affluent men and their political associates, all of whom who had one thing in common. They earned their money through smuggling, especially the smuggling of tea. And yes, today millions of Americans who protest big government and taxes are known as Tea Partiers, but it turns out the Boston Tea Party was not really a protest against high taxes. The British Crown didn't want to raise taxes on tea. It wanted to lower them. This would have threatened the tea smugglers' business by making official imports cheaper. Yes, the smugglers were powerful and the Tea Party was carried out to protect their profits. And how about the real story of what happened to Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov, better known to history as Lenin? As you're no doubt aware, in 1917 there was a revolution in Russia. It was won by a faction of communists known as the Bolsheviks. Their leader was Lenin. Foreign powers stepped in to try and keep them from assuming full control of the Russian nation, and it wasn't until 1922 that they really were able to establish the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, the first communist country in history. At that point, that Lenin 53 suffered a stroke. The party leadership completely sealed him off from the public. The truth was pretty devastating. Lenin was paralyzed on one side. He was unable to speak. He was barely lucid. If word of this had gotten out, there would have been no stopping a bloody power struggle to succeed him. So, a high-ranking communist functionary named Yosef Zhugashvili came up with an idea. He told Lenin's doctors to publish fabricated medical reports saying that Lenin had suffered only a minor stroke and was in full command of his facilities. All he needed was a little time and rest. This medical hoax was maintained for months. Zhugashvili was playing for time. He himself wanted to succeed Lenin but he needed to gain some allies. As Lenin's condition deteriorated, Zhugashvili continued to conspire. Lenin died on January 24, 2004. And despite the fact that Lenin had made it clear he did not want Zhugashvili to succeed him in the USSR, the Soviet Machiavelli was able to get that request buried and was soon enough able to make himself dictator of the USSR, better known to history as Stalin. By the way, Lenin had specifically requested not to be embalmed, but Stalin ignored this and had Lenin's mummy laid out in a mausoleum in the Kremlin. It's still Red Square's number one tourist attraction. And finally, in what has been described as perhaps the greatest fabrication of all time, we have another dictator, in this case, Mao Zedong's efforts to obliterate all 
of Chinese history. China, of course, has one of the richest histories of any country in the world, 4,000 years of it. But in 1948, as Mao Zedong began reshaping the ancient Chinese empire into a vast communist state, he decided that, well, communism must be the only past people know. There was no going back to old traditions. Mao's vision was to ensure that in just a few generations, no one would be able to remember anything about the pre-communist era. In 1966, and I do remember this, he launched the Cultural Revolution. His greatest allies in this monstrous project were the young people of China who had grown up under communism and, in fact, knew nothing else. It was students who denounced their teachers and children who gave up their parents. Intellectuals, artists, monks, and professionals were arrested and carted off to jail where they were tortured and sometimes killed simply because they were considered keepers of the old knowledge. It's estimated as many as 7 million Chinese were murdered during the 10 years of the Cultural Revolution and that millions of works of art and old buildings were destroyed. After Mao died in 1976, his successors proclaimed the end of the Cultural Revolution. And oddly enough, any mention of that reign of terror remains forbidden to this very day in China. I do have to confess that it is perhaps my ability to remember the strange spectacle of seeing uh, uh, university professors being carted around wearing dunce caps and shrieked at by teenagers for their old-fashioned ideas that gives me pause to see university students today in America demanding that ideas they don't like be banned. Now, maybe that's a far cry from making your professors wear dunce caps, but, but, but is it? All right, we got about a minute left. I think we should probably go out with a headline from The Onion. In the wake of Mike Pompeo being elevated from head of the CIA to Secretary of State, the new head of the CIA is slated to be Gina Haspel, noted to have rather unsavory past as regards torturing. The current Onion headline is Gina Haspel recalls having to torture more prisoners than male colleagues to prove herself. Haspel was quoted as saying, For a long time, no one would take me seriously, even though I was abusing twice as many detainees as most of the men I worked with. Adding, it was really frustrating how I'd have to continually come up with more innovative and brutal ways to torture high-value assets just to receive the slightest bit of recognition from my superiors. Yeah, I know it's dark, but you just, you just gotta laugh. And if we can go out with music of the ventures for our outro, in this case, wipe out, well, you gotta feel just a little bit better about life. You've been listening to Radio Parallax, which was produced by Edward McMillan. We'll see you next week at the same time. I'm Douglas Everett.